worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words, then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, in going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless Samadhi, how bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. So, good morning. <clears throat> Wonderful to practice with you this morning. Please sit comfortably. Uh, although, as, as I say that, I imagine all of us taking out Barca loungers and kicking, kicking back. But so we don't have that option here. Uh, <clears throat> so we'll begin with a passage from uh, Master Dogen from the record of Things Heard. He says, students of the way, even if you don't have the Bodhi mind in the beginning... If you compel yourself to practice the Buddha way, eventually you will arouse the Bodhi mind. Especially beginners in the way, you should just practice following the other members of the Sangha. Do not be in a hurry to study and understand the essential points and ancient examples. It is like making a voyage. Even though you don't know how to steer the ship, if you leave everything to the skill of the sailors, whether you understand or not, you will reach the other shore. Only if you follow a good teacher and practice with fellow practitioners without harboring personal views will you naturally become a person of the way. <clears throat> so, uh, for those who don't know, Master Dogen, a uh, Japanese Zen master who lived during the um, 1200s, was born in 1200 and died in 1253. A very famous um, and a really the founder of the Soto school in Japan. 
So this, ma- this, this passage from Master Dogen is really a straightforward um, admonition to, to practice even though we don't understand practice. Don't rush it. Don't worry. Just practice. He says, if you leave everything to the skill of the sailors, whether you understand or not, you'll reach the other shore. Of course, this this reference to sailors, he's not just pointing to trusting other people, but really pointing to trusting our practice, giving ourselves over to the practice itself. That the, the Buddha Dharma has been developed, honed over centuries. And really, it's about what it, practicing what it means to be a human being deeply. This other shore, he references, the other shore is the other shore of awakening. We just chanted this morning at the end of the Prajna Paramita, gatte gatte paragatte parasamgatte bodhisvaha. Something like uh, gone, gone, gone completely beyond to the other shore. Awake, rejoice. Of course, we have to be careful about this notion of the other shore too. Because our minds want to immediately set up opposites. Well, there's this shore, and then there's the other shore. There's here, and then there's somewhere else that we have to get to. But where is that other shore really? You have to be able to show it. Where is that shore, that other shore of nirvana. What Dogen is pointing to is really important for our development as Zen practitioners to be able to discern when we need to steer the ship, when we need to to hold on, and when we can let go, when we don't need to steer. Most of us uh, could do with more of the latter, of letting go of the steering wheel. And of course, this practice is a tension between those two forces, uh, what seem like two forces. In, In the beginning of practice, when we take up something like this, uh, much of the work actually is just um, just working with the nervous system, just working with this constant state of tension that we're in. Most of us are so we're so tight. We've, we've gripped the steering wheel so hard that our hands are cramped. 
And so a part of the practice is just releasing these muscles, the muscles of the whole body, the muscle of the mind, of noticing how clenched we are, constantly clenched. This nervous system of ours is so ramped up that we need to let go through the practice of the breath, through just being present. So even now, just noticing where you're tight, where you're holding on. And then, you know, after some time of this quieting process, then we turn towards inquiry, turning towards, uh, as, as some masters have put it, turning the light inward, turning the light back on its source. And when we turn inward, we're turning away from the mind that constantly is looking outward, constantly seeking, constantly blaming, looking for solutions outside of ourself, looking for a way out. There's uh, actually the very first line in the Dhammapada, says, all that we are is the result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up of our thoughts. We, we recognize at some point in our practice, once, once we've settled enough, that, and we turn the mind inward, that the turmoil that we experience, the limitations that we experience are really, um, are, we straddle ourselves with these. This is not being imposed from the outside. And it's very difficult to maintain that internal focus. Most of the time what we want to do is we want to, we, we end up turning back around and seeking. And so why it's important to practice together is, and, and in solitary, you know, at home, is to re- just constantly bring us back, turning that light inward over and over and over again. One of the ways that we look outward, turn back outward, is to try to understand the practice. This is a very common thing, to want to get a hold of the practice. What is this Zen thing anyway? You know? How does it work? What are its parts? We want a takeaway or a syllabus that kind of outlines. You know? So what's going to happen next? Okay, uh, what, do I, what do I practice next? And then what happens after that? And, you know this over and over again, wanting to understand this. I've noticed this in my own practice over the years is, is, is there's a kind of um, expansion and contraction process that happens of the mind uh, letting go, of releasing, and then 
coming back and wanting to understand. Oh, I don't get it. Wait, what is this Zen thing anyway? What am I doing? I don't, does it, does it even make sense? And then, okay, let that go. Relax again. We do this because we want to reassure ourselves that what we're doing in this practice is worthwhile. We like reading instruction manuals, or at least some of us do. You know, we like Amazon reviews. You know, um, it's like it's it's like buying it. You know, it, when we buy it before we buy a dishwasher or something, we hop online, we read everything we can about the model, we get all the reviews, and then we okay, we reassure ourselves this purchase makes sense. <laughs> you know. This makes sense. I get it. And then we finally hit the uh, hit that buy button. Click. Oh, I don't know. Right. So we tend to take that same mentality into our practice. But at some point we begin to recognize that this is the very force that keeps us on the surface. It keeps us on the surface, relating to our practice, to others, to our life. Like one of those little emerging water bugs now that skate across. Somehow they, they have enough uh, surface tension to, I don't know if that's the right term, but they just skate on the surface. But we have to recognize, is this really going to help us? In the Tao Te Ching, there's a line that says, in pursuit of learning, every day something is acquired. In the pursuit of the Tao, every day something is dropped. Those of you working on koan practice know this intimately. The need to drop. trying to understand it intellectually really doesn't get us anywhere. Most of our skepticism in Zen practice gets resolved through, not through figuring things out, but through direct experience. Most of the questioning that we have in our life gets resolved not through reading and through understanding, but through direct experience. They resolve, the questions resolve themselves. But this takes a certain amount of trust to do. This takes a certain amount of um, development, cultivation of trust that there's something bigger than ourselves. In, in, in the relative sense of self. Even experienced practitioners, people that have done this for years, can really torture themselves by getting back into this skeptical mind. We can get all kinds of tied up in knots trying to figure out Zen. We want to know, trying, we're trying to give it an outline, so to speak, a color, a texture, 
so, somebody was once asked uh, what the difference is between Vipassana and Zen. And I, I saw this actually online. Um, and I liked his answer. Um, he said that Vipassana is kind of like this paint by numbers. It's very linear. It kind of out, gives you a, a sort of program to follow. You do this and then you do that. There's the four uh, foundations of mindfulness and dot, 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 step-by-step approach. This is really appealing to people because it gives us a scaffolding to hold on to. Zen is, is a little more slippery than that. It doesn't really give us a lot to, to grasp. And so what we do is we create the scaffolding up here. We begin to create it, look for it, want it. And so really what we're, we're trying to do is to notice that. Notice that what we do in the face of the unknown is really grasp. Um, how many of us, when the tragedy happened in Florida, we go immediately to wanting to grasp, wanting to understand, wanting to know what, what's the solution here? Of course, there are relative solutions. But, but to also recognize that this is the mind that just is, um, it, it, it can't just relax into the unknown. In the end, um, I think Zen practice is kind of like a black box. I don't know if people are familiar with that term, black box. Not the kind in the airplane. Uh, (laughs) Not the flight data recorder. But uh, there's a term in physics called black box. And it's when you, or in computer science too, I believe, it's it's when you know the input, right? You know what's going in. And to some extent, you know what's coming out but you have no idea how it happens. What's in between is a black box. One of, one of the best examples of this um, in nature is the black box of the chrysalis. Chrysalis, uh, a cocoon, the butterfly cocoon. If you were to see a caterpillar go in, create its cocoon, weave its chrysalis. If you were to, hours or maybe a day later, cut it open, you wouldn't find a caterpillar. You wouldn't find a butterfly. I don't know how many of you know this, but what you find is soup, complete soup, goo. There is nothing left of the caterpillar. There's no antenna, there's no legs, there's no wings of the butterfly or moth. There's nothing recognizable inside the chrysalis. What happens, as I understand it, is the caterpillar releases enzymes when it goes in and it dissolves its own body completely dissolves itself. No eye, no ear, 
no tongue, no body, no mind. Sound familiar? Prajnaparamita. So you could ask, when the butterfly emerges, what happened to the caterpillar? Before it went into the cocoon, where was the butterfly? Another Zen question would be, are these one or are these two? Of course, the central question in Zen is, who are you? Who are you really? Who is it that's breathing? Who is it that smells, tastes, touches? Who is it that grows, changes? Who is it that thinks they stay the same? This, this, this um, researcher got curious about these caterpillars and uh, she created this um, amazing experiment. So what she did was she took a bunch of these caterpillars and exposed them to some sort of smell and in conjunction with, I, I didn't know caterpillars could smell, first of all, but apparently they can. Uh, but so she exposed them to uh, this smell, and when she did, she shocked them. She gave them a little jolt of electricity, and she conditioned them. So when they smelled this, eventually they ran away because they knew the shock was coming. So, so they, they became averse to that particular scent. Then they went into pupation, into the chrysalis. And then a few weeks they emerged. And guess what? They still had the aversion to the smell as butterflies or moths. What is it that survived that process? Did anything survive that process? I always thought, well, in one way, researchers would make great Zen students asking these questions, experimenting, right, directly. That's what we're doing here. This is what koan practice really is about, is experimenting. Who are we? Now, I imagine a caterpillar, knowing what might happen to it, (laughs) standing outside before it forms the chrysalis and going, crossing its little, you know, caterpillar arms, going, wait a minute. So what you're telling me is I'm going to completely dissolve myself, right? Uh, I don't think so. No. Wait, I'll wait till Bob does it. I'll see what happens to him. And then, then we'll talk, you know. Right? Holding back. Um, how many of us hold back? We do. We, we hold back in so many ways. We wait. We, we wait for the perfect conditions in life to emerge, to do something. Once, 
I'm retired, then I'll practice. Once, you know, the, the uh, stars align in Mercury's in retrograde, and, you know, then I'll begin practicing Zen. Once I have enough money or time, then I'll do it. Once I understand the practice, then I'll do it. Once I get a hold on it intellectually, then I'll do it. But see, the thing is, that day never comes. That day will never come. If, if we want to see the fruits of practice, we have to let go of trying to understand it. We have to let go into that black box. We can begin to see practice as like the enzymes of the caterpillar, of this dissolving, this dissolving of, what is it that it dissolves? Dissolving our all of our notions about people, all of our held ideas about others, about ourselves, about the way the world works. Totally dissolving. And the truth is that our life is a chrysalis. It is a dissolving process. Really, it's actually not a dissolving process because there's nobody to dissolve. Just the, all we're dissolving really is the illusion. The illusion that we're solid. I have a, I had a friend who had a son and he came to the age of, um, where he stopped, it was the first year that he stopped believing in Santa Claus. And I and I saw him, and I said, and he and, and I said, so you know, no more Santa, huh? And he said, I want to believe, <laughs> I want to believe it, but I just can't, I just can't do it anymore. We get to that place in practice where we, where it shifts, where we we want to believe in this solid, reified person. We want to believe that the world will function, will continue, that we will we will somehow make it through the chrysalis. But we 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 realize we we don't we can't. So, so just realizing that is stepping forward into this black box of practice. I want to end um, with more of Dogen. And this is from Dogen's Guidelines for Practicing the Way. He said... Brilliance is not primary. Understanding is not primary. Conscious endeavor is not primary. Introspection is not primary. Without using any of these, 
harmonize body and mind and enter the Buddha way. Old man Shakyamuni said, Avalokiteshvara, by the way, is the Bodhisattva of compassion. Avalokiteshvara turns the stream inward and disregards knowing objects. When you practice with a teacher and inquire about Dharma, clear body and mind, still the eyes and ears, and just listen and accept the teaching without mixing in any other thoughts, your body and mind will be one, a receptacle ready to be filled with water. Then you will certainly receive the teaching. For some people, their own views are primary. They open a sutra, memorize a word or two, and consider this to be the Buddha Dharma. Later, when they visit with an awakened teacher or a skilled master and hear the teachings, if it agrees with their own view, they consider the teaching right. And if it does not agree with their old fixed standards, they consider his words wrong. Students should know that the Buddha way lies outside thinking, analysis, prophecy, introspection, knowledge, and wise explanation. If the Buddha way were in these activities, why would you have not realized the Buddha way by now, since from birth you have perpetually been in the midst of these activities? Those of who practice the Buddha way should first of all trust in the Buddha way. Those who trust in the Buddha way should trust that they are in essence within the Buddha way, where there is no delusion, no false thinking, no increase or decrease, and no mistake. To arouse such trust and illuminate the way in this manner and to practice accordingly are the fundamentals to studying the way. stop here and we have a couple of minutes why don't we take five minutes or so and um do i have my time right Eleven forty-five or so um and open it up and see if anybody has any thoughts about this or any questions about practice or um if not we can stop and recite the four vows um i think that 